Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's open in prayer. Lord God, we are so thankful uh, that we come before a good king, a righteous king, a holy king who has come for us, who delights in us, who cherishes us, who wants the best for us. And we know today, as our good king, you have given us your word to feed our souls, to remind us of your love and your victory, to rejoice us and the God of our salvation. So pray, Holy Spirit, you would work in our lives to do that this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm curious, have you ever heard of the Cleveland curse? My mom and her family grew up in Cleveland, and so it's something they are painfully familiar with. Uh, But Cleveland is home of three major league sports teams. They have the Cleveland Browns, the Cleveland Indians, who are now the Cleveland Guardians, and the Cleveland Cavaliers. And from 1965 to 2015, over 50 years, none of these three teams won a major championship, but they had agonizing and painful losses. They talk about things like the drive by John Elway that beat them in the Super Bowl, or the fumble on the two-yard line, or the block of the last-second field goal, or the Indians had the curse of Chief Wahoo. Well, in the 2016 NBA championship, the Cavaliers were down three games to one in a best-of-seven series against the Golden State Warriors. And Cleveland fans thought, here we go again. All is lost. The curse continues. But they won the next two games, forcing a game seven at Golden State. And it was in game seven that the king, King James, took over, LeBron James, He reversed the fortunes of the city and the people. And if you're a sports fan, you can probably remember the image of LeBron James running down the court and from behind blocking Andre Iguodala, which is now called the block. This led to what the Cleveland fans called the comeback. And the 52-year championship drought came to an end. As you can imagine, the people celebrated like there was no tomorrow. Businesses were shut down as 1.3 million people flooded into the city for a parade to celebrate their victory and to praise their king. So far in our second Samuel series, it has been one sad story after the next, hasn't it? Stories of rebellious kings, civil wars, murder, decapitation, polygamy, adultery, euthanasia, capital punishment, and more. It has been gruesome and sad. And while it is so tempting for us to skip those chapters, it is the darkness of the context, the darkness of human depravity that makes 2 Samuel 5 shine so bright. 
In 2 Samuel 5, as, as Pastor David said, we turn a corner and we come into somewhat of a golden age of Israel with a new king, a new capital, and a conquering army. If you would please open up to 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you're in the Red Bible, it's page 257. Page 257 in the Red Bible. 25 years before this passage, if you remember, this shepherd boy, David, is anointed by the prophet Samuel as the next king over Israel. Five and a half years prior to this, he is anointed the king of the southern part of Israel, which is called Judah, while a counterfeit king in the north, King Ishbosheth, rules over that kingdom. But now King Ishbosheth is dead. And now finally, David is made king over all Israel, just as God had promised two and a half decades earlier. And so let's start by reading uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Israel had been holding out for a hero king, for a man of God, a righteous man, a good man to come and to be their king to lead them, to unify them, to shepherd them, to protect them, to provide for them. Finally, the king has come, a man after God's own heart. And so let us, with the people of God, celebrate this king and this kingdom. First, by looking at the coronation of the king. Let's look again at verses 1 through 5. Again, I mentioned this is 25 years in the making. Verse 1, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. So this, what's happening in this passage is also explained in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, what we find out is that 400,000 armed troops come to David at Hebron from all over Israel to, quote, turn the kingdom of Saul over to David according to the word of the Lord. 400,000 military men. That's four times the city size of the city of Green Bay or two times the size of the, the general area of Green Bay. This was a massive and historical celebration. First Chronicles 12 goes on and it says this, and we have it on the screen for you. It says, all these men of war arrayed in battle order came to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind to make David king. And they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for their brothers had made preparation for them. And also their relatives from as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali came bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules and on oxen, abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisins and wine and oil, oxen and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. Can you picture the scene? This is a celebration of biblical proportions. David has become king. But why? 
Why are they so unified? Why are they so excited? Well, if you notice in the first few verses, we are given three reasons why they are so overjoyed to make David their king. See if you can pick them out again here. Verse one through three. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out, who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Did you notice the three reasons they wanted to make David their king? The first is this, is that David is one of them. It says, behold, we are your bone and flesh. Although David was not from the same tribe of all of them, he was also, they were all children of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, who was renamed Israel. They were, they were all countrymen, but more than countrymen, they were all the people of God with their father Abraham. The second reason for their excitement over anointing David king is that David is their champion. Verse 2, it says, in time past, when Saul was king over us, meaning Saul was supposed to lead them into battle, but he did it. He, he abdicated that to David. He says, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. David was famous. Do you remember the song that they sang about David and Saul that made Saul so angry? 1 Samuel 18, 7, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. This song was not only known in Israel, we will find out it was known outside of Israel as well. Everybody knew that David, not Saul, was their champion. The third reason they rejoiced in David's kingship is because David is the Lord's anointed shepherd. Verse 2 says, and the Lord said to you, not to everyone, but to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Again, this is David's third time being anointed as king. One by Samuel, looking forward, one over Judah, and now over all of Israel. David is the one who has been appointed and anointed and arranged by the Lord for his people. Verse 4 and 5 continue. It says, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Christian theologians have a, a, a term that some of you may be familiar with, and it is type or typology. And it's used to talk about things uh, of the Old Testament that were images or mirrors or foreshadowing things that were to come in the New Testament. We even kind of use types today, although we don't really call it that. Uh, earlier this year, I believe it was this year, we had a father-daughter dance, and I, was, uh, I, had the, I had the great privilege of taking my daughter to this dance. And as I took her to the dance, I wanted to be the type of man uh, that she should look for as she looks forward to potentially getting married someday. And so I opened doors for her. I, I paid for her dinner. I, I treated her respect. I asked her questions. I prayed for us. I prayed for the meal. Uh, I, I, we came in here and we danced with great joy uh, in the Lord and joy in just this gift of, of dancing and our relationship. And, and so in that moment, I was trying to be a type. I was trying to be a foreshadow of the type of guy that she is 
to look for someday. But, but I'm not exactly the same as the guy she should look for. So, so when my daughter starts dating, I hope she is not dating a guy 30 years older than her that is married to another woman, right? That would be, that would be an inappropriate application of this type, right? But there are some things that I'm trying to display in that daddy-daughter date to say this is the type of man you should be looking for. David's typology shines bright in this chapter, especially in these first few verses. You see, the same reasons that Israel was overjoyed to have David be their king are the same reasons we should be overjoyed that Jesus is our king. To look at those three reasons again quickly, first off, Jesus is one of us. Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father. He has always lived. He always will live. There was never a time when Jesus was not. He is eternal. He was God above. And yet Jesus left the throne of heaven to become one of us. Philippians 2 marvels at this, saying, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, to be held onto. He put it aside for us, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. God became a man in our King Jesus. Hebrews 4 in talking about Jesus, says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Friends, we do not have a king who is distant and irrelevant and unable to connect with us. We have a king who became one of us and therefore knows exactly what it is like to live in a fallen world and to live in a fallen body. King Jesus became one of us. That's what makes him, one of the reasons that makes him such a great king. The second reason is because Jesus is our champion. Colossians chapter two says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What it's communicating here is that we were spiritually dead from birth, that we were cut off from God. And as spiritually dead people, we cannot revive ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. Dead people don't do that. And yet Jesus, our king, has. It says, it says, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses or our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Its legal demands is our death. Our sin means we deserve to die. And then it says this, Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. And it says, by triumphing them over them in him. At the cross, Jesus defeated the death penalty for us. Jesus defeated death for us. Jesus defeated sin for us. Jesus defeated Satan for us. Jesus is our champion. The third reason why Jesus is a great king is because Jesus is the Lord's appointed shepherd. First, let's consider this word anointed. When we, when we use the word Christ or when we use the word Messiah, it means the anointed one. Jesus is the one who was appointed and anointed and arranged by the Lord to save his people. But not only to save his people, but also to shepherd his people. Jesus is not a distant savior who is unaware of what is going on in your life and in your heart. He's an intimate caregiver. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, 
And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You know, all of us, all of us have a king. The king of your life is whatever or whomever rules you. Maybe you are ruled by bitterness or by the opinions of others, or by lust, or by work, or even ruled by your children. In the first three verses of this chapter, all of Israel is joyfully coronating David as king. But have you coronated Jesus as your king? I'm not talking about just doing this once, but this is something we are called to do on a daily basis, to remember the one who rules our life, who governs our life, who shepherds us and cares for us. Every morning say, Jesus, you are the king of my life. You are the king of my day. Friends, there are many other voices, many other people, many other things seeking to rule you and to be your king. But there is no greater king than Jesus because he is one of us who understands us, who gets us. He is our champion who has fought for us and won salvation for us. And he is our anointed shepherd who has been appointed by God himself, but also seeks to feed and protect and care for us every day of our life. And so first we see the coronation of the king. Second, we see the capital of the king. You know, every king needs a capital, right? Look at verse six and seven with me. It says that the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. As many of you know, Jerusalem was a big deal in the Old Testament. Uh, Jerusalem's a big deal today. But at this particular moment in time, Jerusalem was not that big of a deal. Jerusalem was just another city in the promised land that we would probably mispronounce if we were not more familiar with it. But at this time in 2 Samuel 5, David decides that he wants to move the capital into Jerusalem. And the question is, why? Why does David want to move from Hebron into Jerusalem? And the reason is, is because Jerusalem was a very neutral city for the people of God. It was geographically neutral, which I'll talk about in a second, and it was also demographically neutral. I'll explain both of those. First, it was geographically neutral. So if you look up here at the map, what you'll see is that David was in Hebron, right here, which is in the heart of Judah, the gray area right there, okay? He was, he was in the heart of, of Judah, and, and now at the beginning of this chapter, he becomes a king over all of Israel, which includes all of the green. And so David wants to move the capital city from Hebron right onto the border between the north and the south into Jabus, which is also called Jerusalem. Uh, this is actually not too far from the same reason why we have our national capital in Washington, D.C., because it's between the north and the south, and it's actually not even a state, it's its own Property, I can't remember what it's called, but, but it's so that there can be some neutrality and so that there, it can take away some of the temptations towards favoritism. And so the first reason why David wanted to move the capital from Hebron to Jerusalem is because it was geographically neutral, but it was also demographically neutral. You see, what we read in this passage is that, that Jerusalem, Jabez, was not full of Israelites. 
It is full of Jebusites. And it's really interesting because if you look uh, in, let me get to my right spot here. If you look in Joshua chapter 15, uh, which is about 400 years before David becomes king of Israel, we read something really interesting. You see, God promises at least a dozen times to give uh, Israel the whole, the whole landmass of the promised land, right? Which includes Jerusalem. All right, but when we get to Joshua chapter 15, and I don't expect you to be able to read this. I know it's very small. Uh, the point of it is more that you can see the scope of this. Uh, but we read this in, in, Joshua, uh, in Joshua chapter 15, which again is about 400 years before David. And this is what it says. It says, um, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but at the, at the top, verse 20, it says, this is the inheritance of the tribes of the people of Judah according to their clans, the cities belonging to the tribes of the people of Judah and the extreme south towards the boundary of Edom, okay? And then it goes on for 42 verses, 42 verses sharing the hundreds of cities that God has given to the people of God. The 42 verses, that's a lot of cities. And there's multiple cities in these verses, but these are all the cities, all the regions, all the places that God has given to his people. But then you get to this very last line here in verse 63, and it says, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. And so Jerusalem at the time of David was filled with Jebusites. It is almost as if God withheld this city from being conquered 400 years earlier for this moment in time. So that when David became king, he could establish it as this neutral city for the people of God, both north and south. Now by the time David became king of Israel, by the time they took Jerusalem, it was a well-fortified city, virtually impenetrable. And so the people of, of Jabez, also Jerusalem, mock David in verse 6. They say, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. In other words, our city is so fortified that we will put the, the, the lame, the, the, the paralyzed, will put blind people in charge of warding you off, and they will be successful. You cannot make it into the city. Nobody has for hundreds of years. And then we get to verse 7. It says, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. And so you have three names for Jerusalem here. You have Zion, you have city of David, you have Jerusalem. You also have Jabez, which is a temporary name. But So there you have the four names for the city of Jerusalem. And then the passage continues and gives greater detail of how they took Jerusalem. Verse 8 says, And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. If you took verse 8 out of context, it would sound really bad, as if David was going to attack and he hated the blind and the lame. But, but given the context of what they had already said to him, this is basically billboard material. David is putting this up before his soldiers saying, listen, they say you can't win. They say you can't beat them. They say the Lord can't defeat their blind and their lame. Let's go take the city. And indeed, they did. They penetrated it by going up a water shaft that dropped down below to draw water from a spring. Verse nine continues and says, and David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Millo 
inward. The Milo were some, uh, I guess you would say, some terrace walls on a steep part of the city. I think we actually have a picture of it here. Maybe that's a modern-day picture of the Milos. But what it is simply trying to communicate is that David had built up the city of Jerusalem. He had fortified it. He had filled it in. He had made it. He had made it a capital city of the people of God. Verse ten goes on, and it says, "And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God." of hosts, that is the God of armies, was with him. We'll see an example of this in the next point. But what we will learn is that the Lord fights for his people. He defends his people. Now, as we shift from verse 10 to verse 11, we actually skip forward several decades, okay? And and try not to be too confusing here, but, but verses 11 through 16, which we're about to read through, actually take place after verses 17 through 25, which we will get to later. And the reason why it's put in place here is because it is following the theme of Jerusalem being established as the capital city of Israel, okay? So we're fast-forwarding several decades. Verse 11 says, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. So Tyre was a port city uh, outside of the promised land on the Mediterranean Sea, and it was a strategic city for Jerusalem to send goods throughout the world, also for transportation. But Jerusalem was also a strategic city for Tyre uh, because it was on a major trade route, and so they wanted to keep good relations with them. And so instead of taking them golfing or taking them to a Packer game, they sent them cedar trees and built for David a house. And then we get to verse 12, which is, a very important summary verse for this section. It says, And David knew, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. Remember, David did not take his kingship by force. He waited upon the Lord, and he knew it was the Lord who gave it to him. And it says, And that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. In that day, most of the kings believed that the peasants lived to serve the king. But David knows that he was put in a position of kingship for the purpose of serving the people of God. Again, it's such a magnificent foreshadowing of Jesus who is to come. It was Jesus who said to his disciples, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, but it shall not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. For even the Son of Man, talking about Jesus, came to be served, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Chances are, if you are an adult here or even a high school uh, student, uh, there's a good chance that, that God has put you in a place of authority somewhere in your life, whether it be in business or in the home or on a team or, or, or some other place. God has put you there, not so that you can be served, but so that you can serve those that he has put under your care. And so this is the good side of King David, the happy side of King David. But even the best of men are men at best. And David had his flaws and his errors. And we see that here in verse 13. It says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shabob, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ebahar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishamah, Eliada, and Eliphelet. 
Pastor David Gallagher talked about David, King David's polygamy a few weeks ago, and he did a great job with it, and so I won't belabor it. But the Bible is very honest about the failures of our heroes in the faith. Most of the heroes of our faith from the Old Testament would actually be disqualified from pastoral ministry today. Although David was a great king that showed extraordinary faith and won many amazing battles and sought to worship the Lord and be faithful to the Lord in many ways, David really struggled to control his sexuality. And as we will see later in this book, it has disastrous results, tearing apart his household and eventually dividing the kingdom in two again. The good news for David, the good news for me as a pastor, the good news for you is that God uses messed up people to expand and to establish his kingdom. And whatever spheres God has put you in, not only does God work through you, but God actually works despite you. Isn't that such good news? That it's not up to how good we are, but up to how good our God is. In this instance, God is using David to establish Jerusalem as a capital city for the people of God, where people would gather year after year to be refreshed in the Lord, to enjoy the Lord, to commune with the Lord through the temple. It was a very special city. I'm guessing you have special cities or special places that you like to go. I know uh, every February or March, uh, my family likes to go to Florida, usually to Hollywood Beach. It's a place that we really love and enjoy, and I love just getting there and laying down on the grass like a really weird person, just feeling the grass and feeling the sunshine and, and going out in shorts and a t-shirt. I, I love Green Bay, Wisconsin, nine months of the year, but there are three months that are really, really hard for me, and so that is such a place of rejuvenation for me. And while we might long for Florida in the winter, we are also longing for a greater city that is to come, a city where Christ will light it with his glory a city that will be of complete rejuvenation for our souls. Revelation 21 speaks of this city. It says, And an angel carried me, talking about John, away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. This is describing the capital city of the people of God for all eternity. He goes on and says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. David had established a city to protect the people, to care for the people, to rejuvenate the people. But it was limited in its ability. But our king, King Jesus, will bring a city that will rejuvenate us, not only for a week, but for all eternity. And so we have seen the coronation of the king, the capital of the king. Finally, and this will be the briefest point, the conquest of the king. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, presumably to kill David, because they have now gained more power uniting the north and south under David's kingship. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of 
Rephaim. So again, we have a map here. Uh, this is, you, here you can see the region of Philistia. Uh, here is Hebron, where David was. Here's Jerusalem, where he, has, where he now is, where the capital of the people of God are. And if you look in the zoomed-in map, you'll see right here the Valley of Rephaim, right outside of Jerusalem. And so, uh, so David is facing the Philistines that are coming against him. Now, this is no small task. Uh, the Philistines, just a few years earlier, defeated Saul. They are big, and they are bad, and this is scary. Uh, if, if the Philistines attack Israel, and if the Philistines win, all of what just happened goes away. Israel is divided, broken up, maybe not even a nation anymore. And so there's a lot at stake on this battle. Really, it's a battle for their own survival. Verse 19 goes on and says, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Think of a tidal wave, like a dam breaking. That's what the imagery is here. It says, therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim, which means the breaking forth. Verse 21, and the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Evidently, the defeat was so swift that they couldn't even gather their golden idols and run away. And so David and his men took those idols, and we know from 1 Chronicles that they took them away and they destroyed them. Verse 22, and the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, the same region, the same area. And what we'll see is that David does not simply take for granted the previous victory that the Lord has given to him. David goes to the Lord again. Verse 23, and when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you. Not just with you, but the Lord has gone before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. So you can actually see up here Geba and Gezer. It's a really long stretch there, and so the victory was monumental. The victory actually allowed them to recapture the Ark of the Covenant, as you'll hear about next week. This was a huge military victory. But notice here in this passage, I think something that is really valuable to see is that the Lord shows us two really important things. One is that the Lord goes before us in our battles, right? He goes before us to accomplish the victory, but he still calls us to go in battle, he goes and fights for us, but he calls us still to fight. Again, Operation Christmas Child is a great picture of this. The Lord is going. He is fighting for his kingdom. He is extending his kingdom. But he calls us to participate, to fight along with the Lord, to fight as the Lord goes out before us, with, not with swords or spears, but with charity and with love to extend his kingdom through his church and his gospel. You know, I'm not sure what personal battles you are fighting right now. Maybe you're fighting to save your marriage. Maybe you're fighting an addiction. Maybe you're fighting depression. Maybe you're fighting apathy. Maybe you're fighting for the soul of someone that you love. But whatever battle you are fighting, remember that our king, the Lord Jesus, fights for you and he goes before you. But he does not call you to sit on the sidelines. He calls you to join in the battle, to be faithful, 
Whether that be on your knees in prayers or in actions by, by giving or meeting with someone or confronting someone or talking to someone about the gospel. Let me end with this. I want to end with a, with a little game. I want to end with a game, Name That Tune, okay? And if you know this song, don't yell it out loud. You can say it to your neighbor, but, but it comes, it's from 1983, uh, and, and here's your hint. It comes from the movie Footloose, okay, if you're familiar with that movie. And, and this is how the song goes. It says, where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods? Where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? Late at night, I toss and I turn, and I dream of what I need. And then the famous chorus. It's so hard not to sing. I need a hero, right? I'm holding out for a hero to the end of the night. I'll stop. All right. Stop singing. But it says, it's so weird to just say it and not sing it. He's got to be strong. He's got to be fast. And he's got to be fresh from the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding out for a hero to the morning light. He's got to be sure. And it's got to be soon. And he's got to be larger than life. I need a hero. You all probably know the song. It's called Holding Out for a Hero by Bonnie Tyler. You know, Israel had been holding out for a hero, for a man of God to come and to be king and to set things right again, to lead them, to shepherd them, to provide for them and to protect them. Finally, the hero of God had come, King David, a shepherd boy, small, ruddy, handsome, and most importantly, a man after God's own heart. Truth be told, I think all of us long for a hero. Matter of fact, the Bible says all of us need a hero. And 2,000 years later, a greater hero king would come, who was not only a man after God's own heart, but was in fact a God after man's own heart. Let me say that again. God would send a greater hero who was not only a man after God's own heart, but was in fact God after man's own heart, a God after your heart. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords who has come to capture your heart for his own joy and for your good. And he not only would reign for 40 years like David, but he has reigned forever and ever and ever. And he is building a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem, and he fights before us and with us every day to extend his kingdom in our world and in our hearts. Do you want a hero? Do you want a hero that will undo all the sad things and all the broken things in this world? You need a hero. And I have good news, Christian. Your hero king has come. He is reigning in heaven and he will come again. And so let us, as the people of God, celebrate his kingship, celebrate his kingdom as we await for his return. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful, so thankful for David as a type, as a mirror, as a picture of the greater David that was to come of the ultimate king that would come, our, our hero, King Jesus, who would win our salvation and will win the day. Our hero, King, who fights for us, who fights for our marriages, who fights for our hearts, who fights for our souls, who seeks to woo us to himself time and time again. We are so thankful for an active king, a personal king, an intimate king. 
God, pray that we as a people of God would rejoice, would rejoice that we were not left helpless, that we were not left dead in our sins, but that you have sent your hero king into this world to make us alive today and for all eternity in your kingdom. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.